Hi, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. The UN has declared 2022 the International Year of Fisheries and Aquaculture. Today on the show, we highlight the importance of the small-scale fishers movement by bringing you part two of a webinar that was recorded last year by the World Fish Centre. This webinar features small-scale fisheries spokespeople from around the world and challenges dominant one-sided environmental narratives by centering the alternative narratives and knowledge systems of small-scale fisher folk themselves. So one thing that we have to again remember is that fishing has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. It developed with our ancestors during the Apple Paleothic Etic period some 20 to 40,000 years ago. Fish farming, traditional fish farming forms have begun later on in the Middle Ages, but industrial fishing has been developed in Europe and has been industrialized in Europe. So they had their fair share of development. And today, when we talk about development narratives, not only around small scale fisheries, but in general, we have to give the space without that narrative of lessons learned, we have to give the space for solutions other than the mainstream ones that are presented. So let's get real. Small scale fishing is the solution. It existed for hundreds of thousands of years. So this frenzy towards new solutions such as aquaculture, for example, I mean, how much consulting with coastal communities has been done to get to that to that solution? I mean, doesn't that solution ignore an elephant in the room or taking it more like the status quo if things are all equal this is aquaculture and this is how it's going to save the world's oceans which type of aquaculture because there are sustainable types of aquaculture but mostly right now it is not sustainable we are not there yet but maybe it is because we cannot disassociate these two spaces together that i talked to you about the industrial and the small scale we are not providing the small scale narrative enough strength and power to be able to understand that they might after all because they are selective because they've been around for a long long time longer time because they do not take a lot of fish as opposed to the other type of sector maybe it is the solution and the nature of how it evolves around these communities. So we are so embracing of doomy and gloomy narratives and I think that it should change so that we stop devilifying fishermen. There's also the notion that I call neocolonialist conservation approaches which disregard coastal communities sense of agency over adjacent waters. So when you come in with a big project for a marine protected area not necessarily considering those communities we realize right now that we're criminalizing the poor, both through those processes that I mentioned earlier. We're using exclusionary conservation. So again, coming in with approaches like taking away or banning gill nets that have been used for you know hundreds of years or creating a marine protected area that is non-inclusive or this concept of the blue economy that assumes, for example, that ecotourism this is just one example, and it might be the solution in some contexts, but let's not ignore that there have been communities there, there are communities there, and in some of these communities, the owners of those resorts that operate 
you know, ecotourism end up being cartels that have forced small-scale fishermen out of their adjacent waters again. Then we end up with militarized surveillance and the consequences of that are quite doomy, to be honest. There is another thing that I have to mention here, which we love so much, which are lessons learned, which we use in management, in the fisheries management context and, and conservation. Lessons learned are only great when they are transferred from similar contexts. We cannot transfer lessons, some lessons at least, cannot be transferred from the Canadian, say, cod fishery collapse, saying we should have had ITQs and a wealth-based approach and taking that same context or the same lesson to Liberia by an organization such as the World Bank and saying, let's have ITQs in Liberia. I mean, let's be real there. So in summary for this particular slide, neocolonialist conservation has come as a sweeping wave uh, for the small-scale sector. And many discourses aiming at inclusion uh, have actually become a furthering point for neocolonial conservation. Um, inclusion of, you know, implies stakeholders and processes and so many other things. But while the implementers often remain very limited to a certain demographic group, <clears throat> white men, the colonial process of conservation has been disguised and diversity become a branding statement. You know, if you have, for example, the words small scale fisheries in your funding proposal, you have more chances right now to be funded, not because that project is meaningful, but it's because it has those words in it. It's basically those diversity statements that we love so much. Or it's basically like saying, I'm not a racist. I have black friends. I'm not Islamophobic. I have Muslim friends, et cetera, et cetera. So you will have more chances to be funded if you don't wear the hijab. You will have more chances to be funded if you are from a mainstream organization that sometimes actually perpetuates the same neo-colonial approaches to conservation and to the management of small-scale fisheries. Some things that we see a lot is a narrative that fishers are emptying the oceans, they are evil, driving such recommendations that I spoke about earlier. Fishermen are in fact drawn more and more into poverty and then criminalized after they choose other ways of living. My experience in decolonizing the narrative had to do with a fisherman in Algeria. The day that he told me they took all the fish away from me, pointing to a big trawler near the coast, actually very close to shore, where you see the same thing over and over again. We have seen a lot of devilification of fishermen, um, you know, driving narratives, negative narratives towards them and towards their communities while they're just trying to make a living. They're just trying to remain in cohesive communities. They're just trying to perpetuate their traditions and so many other intangible and tangible values. We have seen fishermen drawn to poverty over and over again. And I'm just wondering at this point in time how prestigious really it is. You know, when you see those articles in the media of fishermen being caught with, let's say, five kilos or 10 kilos or 20 kilos of narcotics on, on their boats, and like these proud Coast Guard, like standing there in the pictures with all those fishermen, their hands tied to their backs, exposed as if they were criminals. But in fact, they may not even have had the choice at that point. And some things that we miss in these narratives have to do more like with more positivity, thriving non-colonized communities that have shut down, for example, government buildings to protect the fishery. I'm talking about the health sick community here in Canada that had decided after telling the government that they should not be allowing a commercial fishery for the herring. The government had said, no, we're allowing it. The herring stock is doing well. 
the health sick community said the health sick nations it's an indigenous um community here they said no we have our guardians out in the water and we do know that they're not the stock is not doing great so please don't allow for commercial fishing and the government refused so they took their matters in their hands they went out at sea they escorted the vessels out of their territorial waters and then their territory and then they had the government building shut down in protest until the fishery was effectively closed we also have the example of other stewards on the east coast of canada right before the collapse of the cod fishery when they actually alerted the government that something was wrong because they knew better than go any government scientist or any academic at the time they said the cod fishery is not doing great there is something bad about it there's something going on please shut it down the government refused and we all know now what happened it's one of the worst cases of fisheries collapses the world has known and it's the cod fisheries collapse in canada there are also those positive narratives towards more traditional context of traditional fishing communities like having the deities of the sea and the accountability that comes with that that you one should be relying on the sea but at the same time not offending those deities by over exploiting using you know criminal illegal practices etc etc and respecting what the sea has to offer to us so my call to action today is to really stop importing solutions and start listening to existing ones which are quite obvious to me how about we start talking about you know the successes and the wins this is the positive narratives that we have to start talking about so that those lessons learned quote unquote could be transferred in similar contexts from one place to another if another place needs it we need science to be a bit less headliney and title driven and glamour driven and more pragmatic towards including these positive narratives even though they are not as sexy as the doom and gloom that we see and we and we promote as much and finally i really would call for researchers to be trained beyond the ivory tower to forget a little bit about being on a high horse that's going to save these communities and more going towards learning from these communities thank you so much thank you Dehia. So now that brings us to the panel discussion of today's webinar. And we've got four excellent speakers who will be providing some insights. We've got Mohamed Arju, who's the director of Sagar Siba. We have Dr. Pratip Nayak, the project director of Vulnerability to Viability Global Partnership. Libby Drew, the founder of On Our Radar, and also her colleague, Athena Taylor, the community engagement lead of On Our Radar. So, um, Arju, you work in small-scale fisheries in South Asia. Can you share an example of a dominant narrative around small-scale fisheries in South Asia and how it's supporting or impacting fishers, fish workers and communities? How can we amplify or shift this narrative? Uh, thank you, Kate. I think uh, there are a few, but the one I would like to share today is that not just throughout South Asia, in most places uh, in the tropical coastal oceans, we have a number of narratives, but those are mostly centered around artisanal and subsistence fishings, small-scale fisheries impact, or the interfaces of small-scale fisheries with conservation of aquatic megafauna conservation of species of conservation interests, such as sharks, rays, or whales, and other megafauna, also important species, of course. 
So what happens if you notice, as Tahia was uh, talking about uh, the colonial narratives around these political fisheries, it's also related to that, I think. Many a times we see that rather than doing more research or doing the hard work of reaching out to the fishers or even trying to get the real picture from the ground, from the fishing grounds, from the coastal communities. We see uh, particularly uh, two groups of stakeholders. One of them are mainstream media houses and also some scientists and even practitioners also. They present the whole thing, the interfaces between wildlife and small scale fisheries, aquatic wildlife and small scale fisheries in a way that probably this is something that inherently dangerous, artisanal fishing of subsistence fishing is inherently dangerous for wildlife. And in the process, what happens, the small scale fishers, artisanal fishers, subsistence fishers, they assess they don't have, they're marginalized. They don't have, um, in most of the cases, effective participation in a decision-making process uh, related to their interest. And when you add this more vilification to that, I think uh, it uh, harms our efforts in two ways. One, it alienates the fisher from any kind of engagement to conservation, even in small-scale fisheries or wildlife. And the second thing that happens, the stakeholders, the media houses, the journalists, the scientists, they don't realize that they have more to do. And I, I think uh, this is something uh, we can overcome with some, not just some real work with the small-scale fishers, but also realizing that you have access to small-scale fishing boats, particularly in South Asia. You have access to the processing centers. You have access to any gill netters, for example, in Bay of Bengal. You can see in your eyes any interaction with wildlife. But naturally, all the researchers who have publications, all the journalists who are publishing in mainstream media, you, you don't have access to industrial fishing fleet. So it's not always that you get to compare the impact and interfaces, interaction with fisheries, industrial fisheries and small-scale fisheries, interaction uh, with wildlife. This is one thing. And the second thing is, it's not just about outward communication about small-scale fisheries to other stakeholders or the general audience, but also intergenerational communication. For example, in Bay of Bengal, you have a large number of a great extent of ecologically good practices practiced by traditional fishers they go to a great extent to release any entangled bycatch, any entangled sea turtles or other species, and they respect that. But this is not something that is communicated, for example, with new fishers who have internally migrated to the coastal areas due to lack of good job opportunity in land. The interaction, the interfaces uh, between wildlife conservation in aquatic spaces and small-scale fisheries is something oftentimes uh, exaggerated and also the fishers are vilified. And I think we can overcome this by facilitating this intergenerational communication between a group of fishers and also a different type of fishers who come to fishing. And second thing is 
For example, if you have a research about impact of gill nets on a certain species of conservation interest, and this is your sampling is very limited. You have a lots of limitation in the study, but you are making very oversimplified statement as a scientist. You should not do that. Thank you. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Um, I want to next invite Libby to answer a question. So really the most remote and marginalised groups hold a wealth of insight into the challenges facing small-scale fisheries. So Libby, can you talk about the untapped power of unheard voices and why the strength of their stories is diluted when outsiders speak on their behalf? Yes, thank you, Kate. Well, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I, we understand that the right to speak is a fundamental right underpinning democracy, safeguarding citizen engagement. And whilst that right must be protected and advocated for, I've seen a really more exciting trend emerge over 10 years of, of working on community journalism. And that is the call to action that those living through the most complex livelihood chains, the social, cultural, economic crises and challenges, not only have a right to speak, but fundamentally have insight that is inherently valuable to society. And that that lived experience is an essential component to balance out our learned experience that we hold within our journalistic and research communities. Yet for so long, we've relied on that professional knowledge gathering, that observation, those hold held conversations of data gathering, which are all such valuable methodologies. But communities just must wait for the arrival of those research initiatives. They must respond to predefined question sets, often in a language other than their mother tongue, and work to timeframes allocated by funders and institutions, rather than speaking at their own pace at the moment that matters to them. And of course, they may never get to see the outcome of their participation or the impact it may have. Um, And essentially, this power imbalance is clearly detrimental to the communities themselves, but is detrimental to all of us, to our social understanding, and to base our knowledge and therefore our solutions and policies and practices on the basis of simply professional research and evaluation is just missing a crucial swathe of the insight held. And so lived experience forms that other side of learnt experience. And whether that's through oral history, citizen reporting, collective community filmmaking, or any other means that we have in, uh, to our disposal um, as citizens, it is untapped valuable information. Um, and the means to share that, therefore, and listen to that, stops being a moral rights-based approach and moves to a more pragmatic, asset-based approach where communities are valued because of their experiences and not simply invited as part of an inclusive mechanism, but are needed and are wanted and are asked because of their value to society. And just a quick point, we recognise that there's a barrage of challenges when it comes to speaking and being heard. That's not just a given, particularly for women and girls. And at Radar, we have a framework called the five C's, which we've co-produced with communities over the last decade. And that's ranged from every country that we've worked in, every ethnicity and gender and age have said the same thing, that they struggle with a lack of connectivity, both digital, political and social connections. But they also lack lack confidence in themselves, conviction that things will actually change in the system. They often lack capacity, whether that's knowledge, time, resources, 
And critically, they often lack the craft for their insight to reach the audiences where they most matter, to be produced in that kind of format that policymakers or platforms or audiences require. But to overcome them, we just don't need people who are going to speak on their behalf or represent or mediate or paraphrase. So we need to switch from being journalists and researchers to being bridge builders, connectors, networkers, who are using our research and journalistic connections to amplify those voices by ensuring that they get seen by the audiences that matter, using those social, digital and political connections and critically feeding that impact back to those communities so they can stay in control of those narratives. Uh, Prateep, you're the project director of the Vulnerability to Viability Global Partnership. Can you talk about why new positive narratives on small-scale fisheries are so important? And can you illustrate with an example? Thank you, Kate. Uh, I think positive narratives are necessary at this point in time because of multiple reasons, you know. Uh, The first reason is we have been witnessing that it is somebody's story and somebody else has been in a dominant role to say that story. So we need to be aware whose narratives and who is expressing them, who is speaking for whom. I think the positive narrative that we are aiming today should include the storyteller needs to be telling their stories and the narratives should be the narratives of the people that are narrating them, you know, so, and we need to change that from the previous practice of somebody else telling somebody else's story. Positive narratives are necessary because things within and uh, around small scale fisheries have changed drastically. So there are probably need for new narratives to be, you know, framed and then be told and shared with everybody. Communities around the world are seeing rapid change, you know, change that they had never thought about happening in their lives and in their fisheries. So those stories need to address the changes that are taking place. We need positive stories because, you know, clearly, the existing narratives, you know, may not have worked perfectly and clearly, you know, in many domains uh, relating to small-scale fisheries, they have not worked. So we need new narratives to kind of, you know, replace or substantiate the existing narratives so that we can tell the story in a more stronger, in, more, in a more powerful uh, way. We need new narratives because we want the fisher people and the new generations of fishers to stay engaged and be interested and find uh, meaning in the small-scale fisheries sector. And I say this in view of what is happening uh, in terms of depopulation and uh, people, you know, and large-scale migration and new generations of fishers not finding a way of life within the existing fishery. So we need new narratives to attract them, to tell them that, you know, there is still probably a way of life within the fisheries itself. But at the same time, I'm also kind of, you know, very uh, aware of the fact that why we are talking about positive narratives, you know, are we trying to tell positive narratives uh, to hide the uh, not so positive or uh, negative narratives, you know, I would tend to believe that that is not the case. I think the positive narratives needs to be used as a metaphor for telling all sorts of narratives because negative narratives and uh, positive narratives both can be very powerful in influencing positive change and transformation within small-scale fisheries. So, 
you know, I would like to kind of you know, to bring this to the discussion today that in the name of positive narratives, we should not forget about not so positive narratives because people's lives are not influenced by positivities always. There are negatives, there are, you know, adverse impacts in uh, people's life that needs to be captured and narratives needs to be holistic in that way that they capture both negative and the positive. So uh, positive narratives as a metaphor. The example that I would give is, uh, you know, uh, Kate, what you said, uh, my role uh, as a member of the B2B Vulnerability to Viability uh, Global Network, which is about more than 100, uh, you know, uh, uh, organizations, institutions, and people uh, in government, uh, policy, academia, NGO, and uh, communities that have come together to tell a new narrative. The new narrative is that Small-scale fisheries have often been talked about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for their uh, vulnerabilities. But if it was only vulnerabilities, then many of these small-scale fisheries would have perished by now. The fact that they have been surviving, struggling, and finding ways to kind of, you know, make life and livelihoods possible uh, tells us that there is something very positive. There is something very powerful. There is something that has kept them going until today. So the new narrative that we have created through vulnerability to viability, global partnership on small-scale fisheries is that not to talk about vulnerability and viability or sustainability or resilience separately, but to talk about vulnerability to viability to show that it is always possible to transition from vulnerability to viability given certain conditions are met. And our, in our pursuit, we're trying to find out, find out those strengths within small-scale fisheries and the partners that work with them to make this transition possible. And that's the new narrative I believe strongly and I'm working on with uh, many of my friends, colleagues, uh, uh, and partners around the world through the B2B Global Partnership on Small-Scale Fisheries. Thank you. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show, we brought you part two of a webinar that was recorded last year by the World Fish Centre, featuring small-scale fisheries spokespeople from around the world and centering fisher folk narratives. And if you miss part of today's show, you can find the podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we would love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. That's all for this week, but don't forget, tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.
Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.